One of the tools I'm going to use when we kind of talk about what should we cover, I'm really going to focus on those things that point to temple covenants. And I have found in the story of Zacchaeus an understanding of temple covenants like very few other places in the scriptures. If you were to ask me, what is the purpose of the temple? Why do I go to the temple? What do the covenants of the temple point me towards? And I would say, well, the temple is going to help you go from terrestrial to celestial. Like, what's an example? You know where I would take you? Zacchaeus. I would say this story is a perfect example of why we build temples. What are the covenants of the temple designed to do? So, Luke chapter 19. All right. I'm going to pull this up so we can kind of see it together. I'm going to use my... PDF scriptures so we can zoom in. All right, and I'll try to go fast so we can still cover cover several other things. Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, and there was a man named Zacchaeus, or Zacchaeus if you want to pronounce it, which was, now he's got three strikes against him. Number one, what's strike one? Anyone know what a publican is? Tell me what a publican was. A tax collector. For who, who, who is collecting the taxes? The Romans. And how do the Jews feel about the Romans? So how would they feel about one of their own working for Rome and collecting their taxes? Strike one, right? We don't like this guy. He's chief among the publicans and he's rich. Now the way taxes go is Rome would say, you have to pay, you have to collect X number of dollars. I need you to bring me X number of dollars. Anything else is yours to keep. So if he gathered more than he had to turn in, what could he do with the rest? Now the fact that he's rich, what do they think is the reason he's rich? They have, he has overtaxed and he kept it. Now I don't believe that was the case. But you can see why they thought that. So number one, he's a tax collector. Number two, he's a rich tax collector. I hate him twice, right? And then he sought to see Jesus. He couldn't because of the press and because, and strike number three, he's little. Now this one, I think we need to draw. Why is it that short people can't see something? I've been tall all my life and I live by a code, move to the back. When I go to a movie, I'm very conscious of the people behind me. When I'm in a photo, I'm always in the back. That's the rule. Let the little people in front of you. So why can't Zacchaeus see Jesus? Because they won't let him in. They have drawn a circle. And Jesus is in the center. You starting to see temple here? Jesus in, is in the center of a circle. And where is Zacchaeus? Outside the circle. Do you see the symbolism? Where do we as a church often put the people we don't like? The broken people, the weird people, the unusual people, the people that don't fit into our culture. Had anyone ever talked to a non-member who lives in Utah and said, how do you feel living around these Mormons? Guess what they'll say? Like an outsider, an outcast. Because these Mormons have a circle. And where do we put weird people that don't fit the circle? We put them out. And that's what they're doing. He wants to see Jesus and he can't because he's outside the circle. Now, allow me to teach some temple symbols. Those of you who have been endowed carry certain symbols. One of them, it's in the scriptures, we can talk about it. One of them is the symbol of the compass. And you think about the symbol of the compass. Now, when I say compass, you might think... Right? But what shape?
do you carry? That's not this shape. There are two, when I say the word compass, let me show you. Two words. Compass means two things, right? And we're probably all thinking compass. But what shape would most match the temple reference to the symbol of the covenant? So why, why do we use a compass? Tell me what this is used for. Drawing circles. Oh, oh. The compass is used to draw circles. Now, how do you make a circle with a compass? Tell me what you do. How do you make a circle with a compass? I take a center point. I, I emphasize a center point and then draw the circle around it. Every circle in the temple is pointing to a center point. Now, there comes a moment in the endowment where we make a circle. What is the center of that circle? What's right in the middle of that circle? An altar. An altar of sacrifice, which symbolizes his sacrifice. Your mouth is dropping. It symbolizes his sacrifice, right? So one thing I need to do is, as we stand in a circle and Jesus in the, is in the middle, now what else, when we're in that circle, what goes on that altar? Zacchaeus, broken people. What is Heavenly Father telling you? The purpose of this circle is to do what? Put the outsiders, the broken, the heartbroken, on him. What's the whole purpose of the temple? What's the whole purpose of the church? Why is there a church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? To carry broken people and put them on Jesus. And what are they doing? Do you see it? Do you see anti-temple in the story of Zacchaeus? What are they doing? What we often do. Every one of you have Zacchaeuses in your life. There are Zacchaeuses in this building right now. They usually sit in the back alone. No one notices them. They will leave the building and no one said hi. These are the people who at lunch in high school ate alone. All of you had Zacchaeuses in your schools. All of you have them in your wards. Some of you have them in your families. The broken people who just want to see Jesus, but they're outside the circle. The covenants of the temple would say what? The whole purpose of the temple is to be what kind of person? Let me help you find him. Do you see what they were doing wrong here? So watch the rebuke. There is one word in this story that haunts me. So going back to Luke 19, Jesus walks in. Now I want you to notice two words. I'm going to emphasize verse 5. Tell me the two words. Jesus did what? He looked and he saw. Guess what we don't do very well? We don't look and we don't see. They are in our wards. They're in our families. They're in our schools. They're at your work. Broken people who are just trying to find Jesus and we don't notice them. We're not looking for them. We don't see them. Jesus looked and saw. He looked for them and saw them. And then he says this word. This word in verse 5 haunts me. Zacchaeus, make haste and come down for today I 
must. Why the word must? I must eat with you. What's he saying by the word must? Do you see it? What's he saying? I must eat with you, Zacchaeus. Not with the stake president, not with the general authorities, not with the Mormons. I must eat with you, Zacchaeus. Why the word must? That was such a rebuke to everyone else. I must eat with you because they didn't. The whole purpose of the covenants I gave them was to put you, bring you to me. And they didn't. So now I'm going to go find you. I would love to think that if Jesus were near this campus, if Jesus were near this building, I think he'd yell over, I'd love to come with you guys. I'd love to hang out with your institute class. But I can't. Because why? Tell me what he would say. Lovingly, kindly, what would he say? He'd say it to me, he'd say it to you. What would he say? I have to go find the people that you missed. Now, what is the purpose of our covenants? Don't miss them. He didn't, he wouldn't. Don't miss them. Look for and see them. They're hurting, and you probably don't even know it. Look for and see them. I love this story. It is a rebuke to me. Bryce, I'd love to eat with you. I'd love to come to your house. I can't. I got to go there. Because... You missed it. All right, Zacchaeus, any thoughts? Do you see why I love that one so much? So germane to our temple covenants. And that to me is the symbol of temple covenants. The temple is making me into a person like he is. And he looks and sees. He doesn't keep them outside the circle. Abby? I don't know, it's kind of hard for me to, <coughs> to think about this on the spot because it's just so, so awesome. Um, but I, um, someone, someone gave me a piece of advice to text um, someone every morning and tell them I love them. And so I was one of those people <laughs> one morning. I got a text from Abby saying, hey, Brother Dunford, I love you. Anyway, <laughs> um, made my day. This morning I texted my aunt and told her, like, I love you, thanks for being a great aunt. And she responded that, like, it was what she needed to hear. Yeah. You never know. It's awesome because I I love feeling like by reaching out, I'm being there for the Zacchaeuses. Yeah. I know. Great. Anything else? It's a beautiful story, isn't it? Please. Show me. You know, the Heavenly Father will open my eyes so I can learn something different or learn something or just relearn something, you know. And uh, it's just interesting that it didn't happen in the temple, but just now, you know, learning about about this and how much there is in the scriptures about temples yep. and how we can learn about it, not just there, but yep. anywhere, you know, in the scriptures. Yep. Well. What gets held up several times when we're there as if to say, hey, you want to understand what you're doing? Go here. Oh, you're in a circle. Luke 19. Go to Luke 19. You'll understand better why you're in a circle if you'll go to Luke 19. Make that connection. The scriptures are how he opens up temple endowments. Tanner. Um, I, I agree and I disagree about the circle existing. I think often the circle is kind of a perceived circle from everyone else. Very keen. Um, Very keen. And, I, and I'm speaking from a, a point of view of Zacchaeus. I don't want to put myself in the circle. I'm talking from someone on the outside. But often 
So the lesson is for them, and the lesson is for him. It is. Um, because how many in that circle are also broken? Yeah. Um, what Zacchaeus is missing, though, I think, is the... Um, he's, and this is going to kind of sound, a, so, that sound bad, but he's throwing himself a bit of a pity party. Yeah. I and, think that's a great insight. And he needs to throw himself a pity party, because that's where he's at at the moment. But the moment that he starts stops thinking about his own issues and starts reaching out to the other people who are outside of the circle is the moment he's going to get into the circle. Yeah. So maybe I am the Zacchaeus and I need to be taught there. This imaginary bubble that you think is interfering isn't there. Do you remember when the converted anti-Nephi-Lehi's are being slaughtered and Ammon says, let's go back to the Nephites. And what do they say? What do they assume? They're never going to love it. They're never going to let us in. They'll never let us in. Isn't that the perceived circle? They'll never let us in. And yet, what did they actually do? I love it because they did three things. First of all, they called them our brethren. They gave a place for them. And then they put their army where? Around there. They're there. They circled them. They put them in the circle. But the perception was... Uh, well, They'll never let me in. Well, even you brought up here in Utah and how people outside feel like they're being blocked out. And how often are they not? Um, That's beautiful insight. Because we come to church, we come to institute, we're going to be doing these things. We're not doing that to exclude anyone. It's a um, beautiful insight. And, and so I, I'm, there, are, there are definitely things in my life that are going really south. Uh, there's a lot of issues with my family going on. I won't get into any of those. In that way, I could be a Zacchaeus. That's beautiful um, insight, Tanner. But really, the thing that I've, um, I, I'll say, I, okay, uh, this is probably even a better thing. But over the past year, I've really been wondering, do I even want to still be in the church? Mm. Uh, I don't feel like I'm in the circle. What made me decide to stop wondering is participating. Interesting. So to reaching out, to start to serve more, to do what I can. My getting over myself is what led me to not feel so out of it. Yeah, beautiful insight. Sometimes the message... All of that twice nice, but let the Spirit teach you. No, I think that was eloquently taught. Sometimes I do make a barrier to people. I don't see them. I don't notice them. But sometimes... Zacchaeus keeps himself outside the circle. And you need to perceive that that circle is probably more imaginary than real. I love that insight. I think that's beautiful. I kind of wanted to point out a verse that kind of puts on in chapter 18, right before 19, verse 42. It says, Receive thy sight, thy faith hath saved thee. Yes. Um, and like over here, when we were talking about the lesson, I wrote down, Christ helps you be seen. So when you have Christ's perspective, um, you can see the good in other people, and you can see that, like, in a way, they're a part of the whole plan, because if you're putting their name on the altar when you go to the temple, like, Christ is including them every time, even though, like, from their own point of view, it might not feel like that. Yeah. Um, People are putting your name in the temple and you don't even realize That's it right. Sometimes. That's right. Because um, I do that. I know that other people do that. Yeah, so he, it brings it back to like Christ sees you whether or not the community does. Yeah. And I love, you know what? I don't want to spend too much time on Zacchaeus. We could get lost here. But notice the two saws. The people saw it. He saw him. I think that's so significant. In Luke chapter 7, where Jesus is at the Pharisee's house, and he doesn't give him, you know, doesn't wash him and all that, and the woman comes in and bathes his feet with tears. It says, when Simon saw it, and then Jesus says, seest thou this woman? He does it again with the woman taken in adultery. When everyone was left, and it says, and Jesus saw none but the woman. He saw none but the woman. I think that's so significant that they saw it, and he saw 
him. Every time I notice that in the scriptures, I, I draw attention to it, that Jesus sees Zacchaeus. He sees me. And beautiful, sometimes the lesson is I'm not seeing the people Jesus sees. And sometimes the lesson is he sees you. Don't think he doesn't. Beautiful insights. You guys are incredible. Thank you. All right, let's do um, Mary anoints. Just briefly, several of you wanted to do Mary anoints. I don't remember who voted for Mary anoints, but go to Luke or John chapter 12. I think this is a beautiful little moment where, Jesus, where Mary anoints. So John chapter 12 is probably the best place to read it. Let's read verse three. Anyone want to read John three or John twelve three? Anyone read Abby verse three? Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Now, reading that, I don't think we get the full picture. So we've got to read the rest, but come back to this verse. So Judas Iscariot, who's kind of the treasurer is upset at the waste and says, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence? Now, do you remember last week we talked about the laborers in the vineyard? How much was the laborer going to get paid for 12 hours of work? One penny. The plural form of penny would be pence. So if you worked 12 hours and got paid one penny, how much is this ointment worth? 300 days of 12-hour labors. That's a year's salary. She spent a year's salary on a box of ointment and put it on him. Judas saw waste. Tell me what Mary saw. Why would Mary spend a year's salary on ointment for him? It's still like uh, uneven. Like if it was even just like her year of working, Jesus has given her yeah. eternal life. And she realizes that this is a small token compared to what he's given me. This is what I call spikenard moments, where I let everyone, who's she speaking to? I think she's speaking to him. I think she's speaking to herself, but I think, I would guess she has children in the room. I think she's speaking to her children. If Mary were your mom, what would you think when she spent a year's salary on ointment for him. Do you want to know how many Big Macs that is? <laughs> if I'm a teenage boy, I don't mean to be facetious, but if I'm a teenage boy, I'd say, Mom, do you know how many video games that is? Do you know how many Big Macs you're spending? And she would turn to me. I just pictured Mary saying what? Yes. This is what he means to me. If I could pay more, I would. This is what he means to me. I call those spikenard moments. What are your spikenard moments? When you send the message, this is what he means to me. I need you to know what he means to me. He means a year's salary in a box of ointment to make him feel and smell like he should. This is what you mean to me. So what are your spikenard moments? Please. I don't know your name. Tell me your name. Jaden. Okay, Jaden. Yep. That's one of the ways I say to my children, my whole ward. I, I learned such a powerful lesson from my wife. When I was hired by the church, I was sent down to Thatcher, Arizona, Southern Arizona. And her parents lived in um, Monticello, 7,000 feet. So one Thanksgiving, we came up to be with her parents. And we live in Arizona where the weather was beautiful in November. And we come up and it's a blizzard. And it's sunny. We decided to spend one more night and leave. We'll go to church. 
and then we'll leave after church to head back home because I had to be to work Monday morning. It was a blizzard. Several people suggested, why are you, why, don't go to church, just go home. Heavenly Father will understand. Go home, it's a storm, you gotta get home. I'll never forget what my wife said. We are not that family that goes to church when it's convenient. We will go to church even when it's inconvenient. Boy, that was such a moving thing for me. That was my wife's spikenard moment. I can't she was giving us a spikenard moment. My parents gave me a spikenard moment every week when they got a babysitter so they could go to the temple. I hated their temple night. I hated their temple night. But every time they went to the temple, it was a spikenard moment. This is what he means to me. A mission, giving up a, a 18 months or two years. What are you saying to everyone? This is what he means to me. Think about that. What are your spikenard moments where you send the message? You might think this is a waste, but this is what he means to me. Any thoughts on that? Beautiful little moment. Tribute to who he was, right? Any other thoughts? Please. Things that take years to pay off. Yeah. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what my teenage children might do if my wife and I saved years and years, bought a car, and gave it to the missionaries? <laughs> my teenage son would say what? What the heck? But it would be a spikenard moment to say, do, we need you to understand what he means to me. Beautiful. Thinking of like little things that you can do, of course, there's like tithing. Yep. 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 That's beautiful. When you think of that as a spikenard moment, it changes, right? I'm going to do this as a testimony to everyone. I'm going to dress this way as a testimony to everyone what he means to me. Remember the, the destroying angel in Egypt? Where did they mark their doors? On the outside. Could he have saved them if they marked on the inside? Could have. Why did he ask them to mark the outside? What was it that passed? What was it that caused the destruction to pass over them? It was a spikenard moment, right? We need everyone to know that this house is on team Jesus. And when they put the blood on the outside, I think it, that was interesting that he asked them to mark the house on the outside. And that's what passed over. Okay, let's do um, um, cleansing of the temple. We had a couple for cleansing of the temple, right? There's two times he cleanses the temple, right? At the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry. Now, I want to go back to the beginning cleansing to, I think, hear the message of what he was trying to send. So go back to, to John chapter 2. The second chapter of John has two miracles in it. And I think it's so significant what those two miracles are. What are the two miracles he began his ministry with? The water to wine, and then he cleanses the temple. Now, think about the symbolism of what he was saying. The symbolism of the water to wine. Anyone know how many gallons he turned into wine? 150 gallons. 150 gallons 
he turned into wine. And what kind of water was this? What was this water normally used for? Washing hands. Now tell me what he's saying. What has he come to do? Jesus has come to turn water into wine. That's what he's going to do. If you'll let him in, if you will let Jesus into your life, he will turn water into wine. And then the very next miracle was, but let's not forget the other half. Jesus will turn water into wine, but he will also what? Cleanse your temple. You have let, now what, what had they done? They had let things into the temple that should not have been in the temple. Now, every one of us have let things into our temple that should not be in our temples. Did you agree? If that's not the case, you don't need to be in this class anymore because, you know. But all of the rest of us have let things into our temple that shouldn't be in our temple. And lest we forget what his whole mission is, he cleanses the temple. Do you see those two miracles are such an interesting way to begin the book of John? I will turn water to wine. Let me in. I will make your life sweet and better and wonderful. But don't forget what else I'm going to do. I am going to cleanse your temple. And as he comes in to atone, he's coming to Jerusalem to atone. What event begins that week? The cleansing of the temple. Now, just to contrast, what happened on Sunday? Two things happen on Sunday. If we believe, I think it's Mark, if we believe Mark, two things happen on Sunday. The triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple. Tell me about the triumphal entry. Tell me what you know about the triumphal entry. Every, and how many people? Let's read it. Can I just point this out? Um, every single author. Uh, let's do this. Let's do Matthew. Go to Matthew chapter 20. Oh, I don't want to take a lot of time, but I think this is so fascinating. Matthew chapter 20, when he cleanses, nope, 19, Matthew, no, it was 20. Matthew 20, okay, 21, Matthew 21, verse 10. What does Matthew point out? Look at, look at 8 and 10. I drew an arrow between them. What does Matthew point out? A very great multitude. All the city was moved. Okay, go to Luke's account. Let's go to Luke chapter 20, uh, 19. Nope. Nope. Yeah, 19. Look at verse 37. What's the phrase here? The whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God. The whole multitude. A, ma a, a huge group. Now, we will skip Mark. I just, let me, let's go to John. Go to John's account. In John chapter 12. Uh, verse 19. What do the Pharisees say? The whole world has gone after him. Now, why was there such a large group? I don't know if you've ever asked yourself, but why was there such a large group greeting him as he came into the city? These are Jews, right? These are Jews, and he has not been in Jerusalem. How often was Jesus in Jerusalem? Very little. Where does he spend most of his time? Up in Galilee. And what has he been doing in Galilee? What do you think they've heard in Jerusalem about what he's been doing in Galilee? Miracles. They have heard about the miracles. So why are they turning out to greet him? They want the miracles. They want to see the miracles. The whole group, the whole world has come out to see the miracles. How many miracles does he perform this last week? There's only two miracles. He curses the fig tree 
and atones and saves us from death and hell. Now, where will this multitude gather again? The multitude that gathers at his entrance on Sunday will gather when? Friday morning saying what? Crucify him because what? He didn't do anything. He didn't do what I thought he wanted to do. And so many people believe Christ is going to do something that it is not his purpose to do. For example, we act as if we want Jesus to give us an easy life, right? What do, pe what do good people of faith do when their life is difficult? What did Laman and Lemuel do when their life was difficult? And yet, what kind of life does Jesus want you to have? An easy life? Is it his intention to give you an easy life? So what are you going to do when he doesn't do what you want him to do? Do you see the contrast? Do you see Sun Sunday is so significant to me because they are cheering him on and the first thing he does is? That's not what I came to do, folks. I am not here to feed you bread and make everyone, I'm, I'm not here to take your problems away. That was a lesson for another day. I am here to cleanse your temple. And because of that, what will they cry out on Friday morning? The same group, crucify him, crucify him. He will make your life Sweet. He will turn your water to wine. I testify he will. But if you think that's all that Jesus wants to do, you're missing a huge part of his gospel. He does want to heal. He does want to bless. He does want to comfort. He does want to make your life better. But more than that, what does he want to do? He wants to cleanse you. And if you're not okay with that, you will be at Pilate's palate on Friday morning asking for his crucifixion. He has come to cleanse you and bless you. Do you see that? Do you see the lesson? Sunday is such a contradiction to me because they are cheering him on and missed his message. And then when he didn't do the miracles, when he instead atones so that he, they can all be forgiven of their sins and overcome death, when that's the miracle he brought to Jerusalem, what do they demand? His crucifixion. Any other thoughts? Well, I am thinking, as we studied this before in Easter time, um, that the Jews were waiting for salvation from... Temporal salvation, yeah. Military salvation, political salvation. Well, if, if their testimony was small, too small, then why would they He said when he came into Jerusalem, they could have been celebrating that Jesus that was going to deliver them from Rome. But when he didn't do that, of course. There it is. Now, that happens. Yep, that happens in our own lives today, right? People join the church because they want the miracles. People follow Jesus because they want the miracles. And I understand that. He will turn water to blind. He will. I testify he will. But his purpose is to overcome sin and death and cleanse you. Um, the way she said that just like put into perspective for me that um, it was conditional love that they had for Christ. Which is interesting because why does he cleanse us? Is it an act of anger and hatred and disdain? Why does he cleanse us? Because he loves us. And he wants us to have a happiness that he knows we can have. So he, un, he loves them unconditionally, and they loved him. Fascinating insight.
Okay, so let's, let, let's now talk about the cleansing of the fig tree. Some people put that, I think that's Monday. Some people put the cleansing of the temple the same day. I don't want to get into it, but the main, the main event of Monday, go ahead. I'm jumping back topic, so I'm sorry. No, you're fine. But I'm just thinking of, yes, they were wrong, but we also know that that's not necessarily bad. Right. Um, Christ, then when he was on the cross, forgive them for they know what they do. Um, and I think their initial response to Christ was entirely appropriate. Um, because I'm sure people in Galilee were very much, when they got to know Christ, they went through the same process. Um, they were at a very beginner level stage, um, which is how all of us start. Um, and we all go through that process. That's why we come to Christ, and because we want that. And then as we learn and grow, that changes and gets left in the past as we develop a new thing. And that's why, so we need to learn from them, but we like don't look too harshly on, on people who are still thinking that way even today. Right. Because he didn't. They're on the process. Yeah, and he didn't. He still loved them. He still atoned for every one of them that and called for his the, crucifixion. What did I just do? He left the disciples there for, to continue the process with yep. them later. Yep. He has not. And even then, how does Jesus feel about the very Jews who crucified him? As a people. I love this verse. I think you've raised a great point. There's this beautiful verse in the Book of Mormon, 2 Nephi chapter 29. We've got to read this. Let me read seven through five or four through five. But, ye, but thus saith the Lord God, O fools that say they have a Bible and it shall proceed forth from the Jews, mine ancient covenant people. What thank they, the Jews, for the Bible which they received from them? Yea, what do the Gentiles mean? Do they remember the travails and the labors and the pains of the Jews and their diligence unto me in bringing forth salvation unto the Gentiles? O ye Gentiles, have ye remembered the Jews, mine ancient covenant people? Nay, but ye have cursed them and have hated them and have not sought to recover them, but have hated them and have not, or not sought to recover them. But behold, I will return these things upon your own heads and then this beautiful line. What does he say? I, the Lord, have not forgotten my people who crucified me. Tell me what that tells you. He still, he still was there because they didn't understand and he was still there for them. Beautiful insight. Every time, Jesus just astounds me in everything that he does. Okay, let's get to the cursing of the fig tree because I think that's so symbolic. There are two things that brought out anger in Christ. Was sin one of them? No. Does he get angry at sinners? No. Two things make him angry. What are they? Hypocrisy and getting in the way of other people. He will rebuke the, the Jews. You are leading them astray. You're the hypocrites. And you, those who are trying to enter, you prevent, you hinder. And so what is the other, other than his atoning sacrifice, what is the miracle of this week? Now, why does he curse the fig tree? What's going on with the fig tree that causes it to be cursed? So I do know a little bit about um, this parable. And whatever, the parable, in the parable of the fig tree, the um, fig tree itself seemed to be like a normal fig tree. And meaning? That's it. The interesting thing about um, fig trees is that you can tell whether or not they have fruit on them based on whether or not, um, like, how many leaves. You got it. You got it. If a fig tree has more leaves, um, then it usually means that it's going to have fruit that you can, um, that's right and you need. You got it. And so here's the, the symbolism is this fig tree is all leaf and no fruit. All leaf and no fruit. All show, all look at me, and no fruit. Do you see the hypocrisy? All show and no action. So tell me what, Jesus, what makes Jesus angry. 
Does sin make Christ angry? Does he get angry at sinners? He gets angry at hypocrisy. Let that sink into your soul. It's not your sin. Here's an interesting word. I know you know this verse. We won't turn there. Speaking of unrighteous dominion, right? We've learned by statics. Many are called, but few are chosen. Why are they not chosen? Because their hearts are set so much upon the things of the world and aspire to the honor of men that do not under this one land, that the righteous of the priesthood are inseparably connected with the powers of heaven. The powers of heaven cannot be controlled only upon the principle of righteousness, that they may be conferred upon us, it is true. But when we undertake to... Anyone know the word? Maybe we should read it. Section 121. What's the word? Verse 37. When we undertake, there's four things that he rebukes. Four things that seems to be the source of unrighteous dominion. What's the first thing? It's not sin. It's cover our sins. When we undertake to cover our sins. Is Jesus angry at a sinner? There's a huge difference between sin and rebellion, right? Which one would evoke a negative emotion in Christ? Sin? No. Which one? Rebellion. To cover your sin is the hypocrisy. I didn't do it. I didn't sin. I haven't sinned. See, I'm all leaves and no fruit. That's what Jesus rebuked. It's significant that it happens this week of all weeks. Because what are the Jews going to show him this whole week? Hypocrisy. And that's, sin is not a problem. Jesus understands that we sin. Sin is not the problem. Rebellion is the problem. You are never, I don't know how to say this, but forgive my language. He's never, I don't want to portray Christ as angry, but bear with what I'm trying. He's never angry at you when you sin. He's angry when you sin and cover it up. He loved sinners. He ate with sinners. But hypocrites, he rebuked. Any thoughts? He ended life. He took life. Yep. And will. Let's be true. He will to hypocrites. He will take their blessings. Um, I love this statement. Maybe you ought to read this one. I love this statement from Joseph Smith. Uh, it may not, I may not have put it in. Hold on. Dang, I have a lot of quotes from Joseph Smith. Dang it. All right, I do have it here. Let me, let me read it. I just think this is worth reading. Sorry, I just can't see. All right, where is your Nancy Rigdon letter, Joseph? Go to my gospel library, Joseph's documents. Nope, not really society. Nancy Rigdon. Here we go. Ready? There it is. Our Heavenly Father is more liberal in His views and boundless in his mercies and blessings than we are ready to believe or receive. Oh, I love that. Our Heavenly Father is more liberal in his views and boundless in his mercies and blessings than we are ready to believe or receive. Now, what's the other side of that? 
At the same time, he is more terrible to the workers of iniquity, more awful in the execution of his punishments, and more ready to detect every false way than we are apt to suppose him to be. He cursed the fig tree. Now, let's be honest. Let's read one verse, section 112, verse 24. 112, verse 24. Are you trying to snap that? Did you get that? I can send that to you. It's called the Nancy Rigdon letter. Just make a note. Joseph Smith, Nancy Rigdon letter. It's a little controversial because the only copy we have was printed in his newspaper as if to say, look what an idiot Joseph Smith was by an enemy. So did they alter it? We don't know. But it sure, when I read it, I just hear Joseph. That's his language. And so I accept it as genuine. But it's called the Nancy Rigdon letter. It's the one that begins, you'll recognize. Remember the verse one? Happiness is the object and design of our existence and will be the end thereof we pursue. The, that's the Nancy Rigdon letter. If you can't find it, let me know and I'll send it to you. Let's go to section 121 or 112. We may have to end here. I'm sorry. We're just not going to get through everything we'd like to. But section 112, starting in verse 24. Anyone want to read? I think this is exactly what we're trying to say. We need to understand the reality of what the Lord is saying by cursing the fig tree. Section 112, verse 24 through 26. Let me read. Vengeance cometh speedily upon inhabitants of the earth, a day of wrath, a day of burning, a day of desolation, of weeping, of mourning, and of lamentation. As a whirlwind shall it come upon the face of the earth. Where will the destruction of the second coming begin? Upon my house shall it begin. And from my house shall it go forth. Where? Where is he going to target? Where will he target the destruction of the second coming? First, among those among you, saith the Lord, who have professed to know my name and have not known me. What makes him angry? Not sin. It is not sin that upsets the father and the son. It is not sin. It is hypocrisy. There is a huge difference between weakness, transgression, sin, and rebellion. And the cursing of the fig tree should stand as a testimony of that. There's just one thing I feel like we need to at least mention as we're walking out. Um, Matthew chapter 22, when, of the, when one of the Pharisees comes up to him and tries to trap him by saying, what's the greatest of all the commandments? What's the number one commandment? Master, which is the great commandment in the law? And then in answering it, he says, first and great. What is the first and the greatest commandment there is? Love God. And what's the second? Love everyone else. The gospel is no more complicated than those two commandments. Love God and love men. Of that I testify in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.